Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of art, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm Hasha Montasser, founder of The Lighthouse. I'm honored to be joined in today's episode by Chef Daniel Belud, who was recently in Dubai to open his first restaurant in the city, the Belud Brasserie at the Sofitel Obelisk in Wafi City. So we set up our mics under the long crystal chandelier, surrounded by mirrored walls, ceiling and marble floors. You'd be forgiven if you felt like you were in the middle of New York City for a minute. What an honor. And welcome to Dubai. Thank you. Couldn't be a better welcome than with you. <laughs> thank you very much. It's very kind. And thank you for a lovely and delicious dinner last night. Thank Enjoyed you ourselves much. very much. Chef Bolu's career is nothing short of illustrious, of course. Starting out as an apprentice at just 14 under Chef Gérard Nandron at the two Michelin star Nandron in Lyon, moving to Copenhagen at just 21 to work at the Plaza Hotel before moving to Washington, D.C. in the early 80s. This then led to him becoming a true entrepreneur with the launch of his flagship, Daniel, which celebrated 25 years in New York in 2018. Since then, he has co-founded the Dynex Group, which oversees operations with more than 900 employees from Vancouver to Beijing. Personally, I remember evenings at Café Volude in New York and London's Mayfair with great fondness and amazing memories. And isn't that what a good restaurant is all about? As the late Deborah Kletter would say, taste always has a memory. And on top of all these amazing achievements, he's a fascinating personality. And perhaps nothing showcases this better than how he celebrates his birthdays. Danielle might be a few years away from his 70th birthday, but you can almost hear a metaphorical skip in his step as he fondly remembers his milestone birthdays over the last three decades, starting, of course, with his 50th in 2005. You had, they had a party for you. Well, yeah, yeah, I had a big party. I had many good <laughs> parties heard, in I my heard, life. I heard. <laughs> I had many good, good parties. My, res- my, my research revealed a 50th birthday I party. I tell you, my 40s, my 40s birthday party in New York, my 50s birthday, oh. and my 60s birthday. Now I'm jealous. They were amazing. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, my 40s, a, there was a nightclub owner who every night was eating at Danielle. Wow. And I turned 30, 40s in 95. And, 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 and he said, Danielle, I know your birthday is coming. I'm giving you my nightclub. And so DJ, everything. Which booze, nightclub was free it? Free booze. It was the, the Palladium. Ah, the and Palladium. there was the Michael, the, the Michael Todd rooms. Yes, I remember it. The Michael Todd oh rooms. Oh, my God. So I had 250 friends, you wow. know. I mean, that was wow. okay. <laughs> Not bad for a 40th. Uh, yeah, that, that was good. And uh, everything free, everything free. The DJ, the booze. The <laughs> Jacques Torres made me a cake who was like 10 feet tall. Wow. <laughs> and then uh, my 50s, uh, a friend of mine bought at auction because at the time I was uh, doing a fundraising at Daniel for City Milan Wheel every year. And he bought a dinner for 12 with Robert Parker and his wine. Uh, for 12 people at Daniel and 12 course meal, wow. 12, uh, 12 wine from Robert Parker and all wow. that. And he paid $30,000 for that. And my friend say, a very big wine collector, good friends, good customer, he say, you know, Daniel, this is your birthday party. You can invite another 12 friends. Wow. <laughs> so uh, now we are 24 people <laughs> and all the other friends of uh, that friend invited uh, was kind of good customers and friends, including Robert Parker. But then he said, no, we don't want the wine of Robert Parker. I'm going to bring the wine. 
and the youngest wine was maybe 1970. The wow. oldest wine was 1870 wow. or 90. <laughs> that must have been some night. 1889. And, 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 and uh, we drank uh, 24 people. We drank 85 bottles. <laughs> there were a lot of magnums and all that. The dinner lasted six hours. Oh, my God. And, and we you're had, still standing. And we had 16 courses wow. made by 16 of my chefs who used wow. to work for me or as work for me. <clears throat> How so special. So I invited all my alumni to come and cook for my birthday. And Amazing. it was the party of the century. Wow. <laughs> because every chef made a platter. I say, I don't want you to give me a little degustation thing. Yes, you're I want gonna make, food. You're going to make me real food. And then my, my 60th birthday, my wife, Catherine, took care of it and transformed Daniel into Casino Royale. And um, I had a good amount of friends and good amount of fun, too. <laughs> I'm coming to the 70th. Please mark the date. But the best gift was from my partner, uh, George Milo. When I turned 50... He gave me $100,000, and he said, do some good with it. And from that, every year, I used first the, pro the, the profit I was making on this money I put uh, in, um, in a bank and with the managed money, a manager, money manager. I put that money aside, and I was using the profit. And then after, uh, slowly, I mean, some years was not so good, but I was using also the, uh, the principal. And every year, I was sending one of those young kids, underprivileged, uh, who uh, came from these underprivileged college, uh, high schools, and uh, I was sending him to Lyon at the Ecole Paul Bocuse for three months. And, uh, you know, I was doing a little competition with three or four of them selected because they, they made a good presentation. And from there, I was giving them a subject like chickens and... Uh, uh, chicken and um, like maybe a classical application of a chicken and or, or a fish or something and then they, the one who came out with the best dish and the most uh, close to, uh, to creativity and yet you know connection with the classic uh, uh, application uh, win the price and I'm, I continue to do that as long as I could with the money and then after continue to do that with the uh, with myself. Uh, That's wonderful. So uh, to me, that was a gift who had value because it kept giving, it kept giving, it kept giving for years and years and years. So I'm going to pick a point uh -huh. in your career and start there and then we'll move around. You had already okay. uh, made a name uh, in France for yourself. You had worked with a number of Michelin chefs, restaurants to some extent. What made you decide to leave France? given the prominence of France in the culinary industry? I wasn't planning to go to Denmark or anywhere out of France. I, was, uh, I started an apprenticeship in Lyon for three years. And then from there, I went two years with Georges Blanc. So the apprenticeship was a two-star in Lyon, Nandron. Then three year, uh, two years in Georges Blanc, two-star in uh, Vonas, before he got the three-star. And uh, I went to Roger Verger, who just got three-star. Uh, I asked Georges Blanc, I said, can you help me get a job there? And right away he called, and uh, six months later, I had a job at uh, the newest three-star in France, the Moulin de Mougins. After my two years, you know, you go and sit down with the boss and have a little um, recap and interview, and I told him, I said, you know, I would like to go back to Lyon, and I would like to go to Alain Chapelle, or I would like to go to Trois Gros, 
or uh, a, a three star around the, the region. And he say, oh, Daniel, I have a better idea. I mean, why don't you go to Copenhagen? <laughs> because he was a consultant there. He was uh, doing the menus for uh, an hotel who was fantastic. It was a Tradition Equalité, which is Les Grandes Tables du Monde, uh, some of the best chefs in the world and all that. And also um, Relais Chateau. Uh, the hotel was the Plaza Hotel in Copenhagen. And the owner of the Plaza Hotel in Copenhagen had also the Sellerer Crow, which was just outside of Copenhagen, beautiful old Danish inn. He had uh, the uh, Kongens, no, not the Kongens. He had the um, Kong Frederick Hotel, and a group of hotels and restaurants, and also La Maison du Danemark in Paris, right on the Champs Elysees. So very, very familiar with France, very dear friend of Roger Verger, and Roger Verger was the consultant. So he asked me, Daniel, would you go and represent me there? Uh, he so said yes. I was 21 years old, and no attachment to any uh, love affair or anything. So <laughs> I just went to Copenhagen and of course fell in love every five minutes there. <laughs> uh, but Copenhagen at the time was right at the end of the um, mid to late 70s. And you could really see already the impact of Nouvelle Cuisine happening there and the rise of uh, local chef, uh, the, the rise of local talent already. And that was a very exciting time, I think, in Copenhagen. It was way, way, way pre-René Redzepi and, yeah, and, the, and the Scandinavian uh, movement. movement. And same in Sweden and same in Norway. And there were already this sort of little circuit of uh, great restaurants and great, uh, great place. So, so the idea was clearly planted in your head, even though you grew up both in Lyon and in France in general, in a place that obviously celebrates food, known for its culinary excellence to move to Copenhagen, and from there, you wind up landing on the Upper East Side. Well, I was, I was in Copenhagen, so I go to Michel Guerra. I come back to Copenhagen because um, I love that city, and I really felt that I felt good there. I took a lot of responsibility. I was starting to get great contact, and, but I wanted to leave the hotels. I, and I meet this very young restaurateur, Jan Hurtikal. That was his first business. So imagine, very artistic, very free mind, and uh, good background, but maybe not like me. But together, we opened his first restaurant. And so it was really like uh, one of those, uh, you know, when I see sometime today, young chef in Brooklyn opening the little edgy place, which is a little artsy, <laughs> yeah. didn't spend much money, but the food is amazing yes. and all that. And that was very much like that. And I did that for almost a year with Jan and that was fantastic. And then they, they, a friend of mine reached out to me and say, uh, I have been given a job to, in Washington as a private chef to an embassy, uh, the European economic community, but uh, I don't want to go. I have uh, two, three kids, and uh, would you like to go? And so I met the ambassador in Europe, and I decided to go to Washington. And of course, the moment you got to Washington, you were like, this is not it. I have to move to New York, I'm sure. Yes. Well, <laughs> after, so I arrived in Washington, and there, when I was at Michel Guérard, there was this young chef in the region, very young. It, his name was Jean-Louis Paladin. And Jean-Louis Paladin... Uh, was the youngest two-star chef in France. I think he was 27 when he got his two-star or something. And he moved to D.C., to Washington. 
So I arrived maybe almost barely a year after he moved into Washington and he opened the restaurant Jean-Louis. So I felt already arriving in Washington, there was a connection with French fine dining. And, uh, and while in America, all those French restaurants was kind of like from the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. 100%. Uh, Jean-Louis Paladin was like right on with his tasting menu. He was writing his menu every day based on the market. He was going to the market all the time. He was teaching people how to raise squab, how to raise duck, how to raise lamb and, and, and vegetables and herbs. And so he was really engaging with the local and uh, creating... The, I think the model for what America became in, term, in terms of fine dining after. And uh, I felt that, you know, I want to stay here for a while and try to, you know, practice now, practice in the restaurant business. And I moved to New York for that. I didn't want to stay in D.C. I loved you New York. You understood that New York was essentially at the epicenter of, of all of that, obviously. Yes, and also I love the energy of New York. I love the power of New York. I love the, 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 the complexity and also the diversity of New York. And, and speaking of power, you landed at a restaurant that was at the epicenter of power at the <laughs> oh, time. Yeah, yeah. It was the place. Absolutely. Uh, they yeah. called Power Lunches, which, yes, they still do, but maybe less so. Less so, uh, people. Absolutely. I was in two <laughs> hotels. They are arriving in New York. I, I worked with Trostas Forte, which at the time was the largest hotel group in the world. They had, uh, uh, you know, the, the Georges V in Paris, the Plaza Athenee, the Savoy, the the Claridges and uh, all those uh, great hotels. I did maybe three years with them and I had enough with hotel and I went to the most iconic restaurant in New York at the time, Le Cirque. And Le Cirque, everybody looked at me like, oh, this one is going to butt his nose on the thing. <laughs> He's never going to make it. <laughs> he don't know what it is to be one of those French iconic restaurants in New York where... You know, it was really um, a thing from the past, and yet 100%. the owner was trying to evolve with the present. But you must have underst understood that. I think what I understood is that I had a very good background as a classically trained chef. chef. So I understood the cuisine they were trying to do. Yeah. I felt that it wasn't that good, <laughs> frankly. Like, you know, it don't matter if you do a bouillabaisse or if you do a, a, a tripe, a braised tripe, or if you do any classic dishes. Uh, there is a way to do it ordinary and there is a way to do it, you know, extraordinary. And I felt that I, if I could elevate the classic already so people are not disoriented, the customer are not disoriented, and everybody see the difference, even, you know, a pot of herbs. So a pot of herbs is boiled meat and vegetable. Uh, when I introduced the pot of herbs I was making, uh, it was not just a little pot with a bunch of cut meat and vegetables and a good broth. It was a marmite like this with seven different meats and vegetables and, and, and 12 different condiments. And I wanted to elevate that to, to the... level. Yeah, exactly, to the highest of what sort of can. what gastronomy could be when even when you do a classic dish. For me, it was a natural to be there, but also was innovating a lot with new dishes who became new classic, such as the famous Popier of 
sea bass wrapped in crispy potatoes on the bed of leek with a red wine sauce or the sea scallop black tie who uh, the minute we made that dish never left the menu and even when I left Le Cirque, it Still always there. stayed there. <laughs> and walk us through that very, I think, very important point in your career where you obviously must have had the confidence to think I can put my own name behind the restaurant. Now, I want to just pause here because you didn't do it in a way some chefs maybe do. They have built a name, a reputation. They lend their name to a restaurant group. You did not do that. You started your own business. That's a very big transition. And you started your own business in New York on the Upper East Side, highly competitive place. You, if you don't make it, essentially, people will know immediately. And your oh, career can absolutely. be killed. Absolutely. absolutely. So walk us through your thinking at the time. Huh. Uh, first... After four years, five years at La Cirque, uh, I had a baby girl, okay. Alex, my daughter, and now she's 30 some. Fantastic. <laughs> is she also in food? No. Okay. <laughs> but she lives in Washington, D.C., interesting ah, where I all started. <laughs> interesting, okay. New York in the late 80s was rough. Yes. It was really rough. Crime. Yes, absolutely. And I felt like, is there my chance to go back home and open a restaurant in Lyon? But my parents were farmers, I had no money. What I did is I went to the city, to the city hall, to the mayor, to all the people working at the city hall. I was knocking at every door and say, oh, you own this building and you own this beautiful pavilion here and this and that. Why don't we can make a restaurant? You call yourself International City Lyon. Maybe you need an international chef. <laughs> and I was almost close enough to be able to do it. But the problem was the mayor of Lyon was in a tangle of politics and problems and, and uh, no one was making decisions. And after a year and a half of trying to go back to Lyon, and then also 89, 90, that was the crisis. That was a crash of 89, Black Friday. And so the, the New York was shaken. And um, I decided to stay. And that's when I started to decide to raise money in New York to do that. You know, it was my first business, and I needed two and a half million. And I felt that if I can find two investor, a ten investor at two hundred and fifty thousand, I would be okay. Little by little, a lot of people say, "Well, you know, I lost so much money <laughs> in the crash, and I'm barely recovering. I can't afford to go into the restaurant business." So, but I was very lucky. I had four good friends. One was a lawyer. One was a family friend, uh, one was a real estate broker, and one was, uh, the, but that was three, three of them helped me, and one was an, also in the real estate as well. And Lily, who is still my partner today, is, is a Harvard graduate. That's why I ask you what year you graduated from Harvard, <laughs> I because I think she graduated in 91. Okay, she's oh, a little bit ahead of me. 91, 92. I graduated in 97. <laughs> exactly. So they decided to help me and be my cover-up for all the meetings, the negotiation with landlord, and uh, helping me raise money. Why would they help you? I'm just curious. Because what was... they, we were all very young, and we wanted to kind of help each other. Different. Sure. Uh, and they wanted me to, to succeed in my dream. Uh, they were all very close friends with my wife. Did you I raise was... the two and a half million? Well, uh, <laughs> I had about half of the raise, not even, I, I didn't even have a million yet. But I was meeting the uncle of Lily, who uh, just retired from being the CEO of Playtex. He made a lot of money. He gave a lot of money to hospitals, 
to research centers, uh, to Yale University there. Uh, you know, he has a couple of buildings there at Yale and all that. After an hour conversation, he tell me, say, you know, I know you are trying to raise money. I know that it's not an easy time, but I'd rather be the only partner than one of them. So he gave you the whole amount? He said, tomorrow we can start business if you decide, and that's a good thing for you. And uh, wow. he said it will be much easier to do business together, and it'll be much easier to... Uh, It'll be much easier to, to progress together. Joel Smilo was, um, he was very smart. He ran multi, uh, I mean, international uh, company on the stock market. Lily was a Harvard graduate. Uh, Joel was a Yale graduate. So all of them together guide me quite well in setting up my business and running my business. So what but did you the think success, they, they don't depend always on the money you have. It's no, that's exactly <laughs> my point. What did you think they saw in you? Because raising the money is not easy, but it's not enough. Plenty of people, you know this business better than anyone, raise money, open restaurants, they close. So they must have seen something. Do you have any sense of, any guesses of what they saw in well, you Well, the they, they knew that uh, I had talent because already at Le Cirque I won four star in the New York Times, which was the, the highest rating. Uh, I won uh, Best Chef in New York with James Beard. I won Food and Wine Best New Chef. I mean, and I was just like getting all the award and the recognition already before I left Le Cirque. So that was kind of the foundation. Uh, and Joel Smilo at the time say, you know, I uh, couldn't afford to get Michael Jordan, but I got the Michael Jordan of cooking. <laughs> I think he was right. When we come back, we'll continue following Chef Boulud's journey as he evolved into a seasoned entrepreneur and investor, how he's decided to pay it forward and give back to his community, and his take on technology and automation in the F&B space. On the other side of the short break. Hi guys, this is Hashem again. I'm excited to share that we've launched our newest concept called Small. It's based on a menu of, well, small indulgent dishes that you can mix and match. And my personal favorite is the merguez sausage sandwich, which is just divine. So if you're in Dubai, make sure to drop by the food district at the point and take a bite out of the new merguez with tahina sauce. You'll find small among other locally born fabulous concepts like boon coffee, reef koshiyaki and sticky rice. Small is on the first floor of the food district at the point on Palm Jumeirah, and you can follow us at Small Dubai, S-M-O-L-D-U-B-A-I on Instagram, and drop us a line if you stop by and let us know what you thought. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with Chef Daniel Boulud. Before the break, Daniel managed to secure the entire investment he needed to open his flagship restaurant in New York City, and the rest, as they say, is history. Right away when we started the restaurant, it went on fire. I mean, it just like exploded. Exploded. And so three years later, Le Cirque closed and moved to the Palace Hotel. And they call it Le Cirque 2000. The Mayfair region closed and become a condominium. And they approached me and said, Daniel, we want you back there. We want you to move Daniel there. And we want to sell you the real estate as a condominium, uh, George Milo again could really be the partner to step up 
because he decided to bankroll the entire uh, move. So 24 years ago, we bought the real estate, 1,700 meter, square meter, which is 17,000 square foot is huge, three floors. And uh, we had to invest $10 million in it 23 years ago. Amazing. And this must have given you the sense, because we all know, I mean, a big part of the struggle of restaurants is obviously landlord issues, rent. Of course. And the risk, the financial risk. And the financial risk. So you got rid of that very early. Did you feel that enabled you to think long term about Danielle and about the Exactly. No, what made me think very long term was that I was going to become a real estate owner at the same time as uh, be a, a restaurateur. And that I felt, and that will always be my retirement option. Did George Smiler understand that you're also a good businessman? Because obviously you are. So. Well, I, pr- I proved him at the first, Danielle, that we could <laughs> be profitable yeah. while be so the best restaurant in America. Over. Absolutely. <laughs> Is he still part of your group? No, he's retired now. Okay. His children have a small uh, stake, and Lily as well. Plenty of good chefs, great chefs, in fact, are great chefs. That doesn't mean they're good business people. H- how did you manage those two? I mean, in your business today, you're both. You wear a chef hat and you wear a, a business hat. You're a CEO of a, of a large company. I Absolutely, mean, and I'm kind of micromanaging as well. So yeah. I get involved with everything from PR to HR to uh, yeah, exactly. to design yeah, to uh, the taste of the coffee to <laughs> everything. Where did this, did you always feel you had that in you? I think the passion for this business. I really love this business. I love the people working in our business. Uh, I think what made me succeed is the people who work with me, of course. Uh, Every staff members, we try to really pull the best out of it. And we really try to have them bring the best to the business as well. And, um, And taking risk, taking high risk. Uh, you know, I had some high and low taking risk. I lost the star sometime. I, I, you know, I, um, you, I have been in New York now for almost four decades, and uh, I have seen nine or ten food critic at the New York Times, and I'm still kind of standing. Uh, but I think what uh, saved me the most was the loyalty of my customer, and. Uh, the loyalty of my staff and the loyalty of my uh, my partners uh, and and the trust uh, everyone put in and the community in New York. I think you know I've been always part of the community there and uh, being really made my this, this city my city and uh, I think that's. The and way you have think embraced Dubai here and made this city your city. And, uh, yeah. and you pay it forward. You've seen, as you said, highs and lows. Um, inclusive of 9-11, would you consider this to be one of the main lows today? Of course. Post-pandemic? Of, oh, this is much worse than 9-11. Okay. Much worse. How are you I mean, thinking now about your business? I mean, you have people today that are furloughed. Yeah, 9-11, that- we had a stop. We had a stop. But then there was a start again. And the start was barely a month mm. after. Uh, within the, uh, early October, we were starting to see uh, progress. And within uh, the end of the year, tourists was still coming to yeah. pay tribute to New York. Yeah. People were feeling so 
connected with New York. And I think we had this amazing support. Which, I remember. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, emotionally, everyone was shattered, but uh, at the same time, very, very hopeful. And, and, and this power of togetherness was amazing. Uh, what about amazing. today? Today is just a disaster because uh, in 9-11, I never lost staff. I, uh, you know, I never furloughed staff. Uh, here, I mean, your most loyal chef, 23 years with you, you have to tell him to go on unemployment Amazing. and make 20% of his salary. I mean, for months. For on months. End. And so right away, uh, I took initiative to try to bring back the talent, the, the people who, I, I couldn't take it that they could, they could be furloughed and, and, and unemployment. So we started to do meals in New York. So for Private Jose Andres with World Central Kitchen, oh. then with City Meal on Wheel, we created a foundation, Food First, to, uh, to pay businesses uh, to reopen and make meals as well. And that was the first initiative to try to bring back talent and support them. So, you know, we were making meals at $6 a meal or $5.50 a meal, uh, but at least thousands of meals a day were supporting the staff and we could and we were trying to get also support from f suppliers and and to date we have made almost half, half a million meals Amazing. gifted to New York and we continue uh, when I'm coming back in a week and a half I have a fundraising for this foundation Food First Foundation and I created that with my new partners uh, I am opening a new restaurant and for the first time I'm doing it with a local partner, a real estate partner, in a new development in New York uh, called One Vanderbilt. So it's a basically a three and a half, four billion dollar development, one tower, and there'll be only one restaurant inside. Uh, it will be called Le Pavillon, and we're opening in March. And uh, with them, we started. Uh, we started this foundation with them. He wanted to start a foundation to help some of the businesses he had uh, tenant in his uh, real estate group that he felt terrible for them. So he said, I want to pay my tenant to reopen their kitchen and have a little bit of business. Will New York come back the way it used to be, in your view? It might take time, but, or do you feel there is no, a, a rift York, that is now no, New York hard to hear? will come back. There's, there has been you know, people leaving New York. I think the, the people were very insecure and unstable financially and uh, insecure uh, in their job, I think it was better for them to leave. And some people also weren't secure with the fact of the pandemic in a city. Of course. A lot of small companies, some of them wanted to live in smaller city like, uh, you know, Seattle or Portland, Oregon. But uh, the big financial group, the big uh, motor... The motor of the world, I think a uh, lot of engines are there. And, um, and also young people. Young people will come back to New York. The way after 9-11, a lot of young people wanted to come. I, I was just going to say that. So, I mean, when I, when I speak about New York, and I, I lived in New York for five years, and I, I consider it uh, 
I mean, one of the best cities in the world. I grew up in Cairo, which I'm in love, in love with, and I'm equally in love, if maybe more, with New York as well. I'm due um, to go to Cairo because Cairo's <laughs> I fantastic. have friends there, and I had fantastic a long time city. Friends. Very different, but similar in the vibrancy oh, yeah. and the energy that you have in New York. Of course, I'm the only one that goes to New York as my wife makes fun of me and says that. I'm the only one that celebrates that you see trash on the streets. It reminds me of Cairo. <laughs> I actually don't mind it. It, it. You know, it's part of the smells you grew uh, up with. Uh, and the honking and the... Anyway, so it's, it's fabulous. I think that if anything, um, this might create an opportunity for younger people to move to New York that couldn't afford it. I mean, New York, meaning Very Manhattan, much. had priced out a lot of people. There's a reason there was exactly. a move to the and, Brooklyn. And, 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 and I think there'll be a reset uh, in a lot of ways for businesses to find better deal between uh, restaurateur and landlord or business and landlord, and also for people living there, for New Yorkers. I think there'll be opportunity to uh, move in, to settle, and to launch business uh, in maybe a better way than the direction it was going. I think this reset will, I think, help. And you are clearly forward-looking. You are investing in technology. (laughs) <laughs> you have set up a company, when I did my research, that looks at robotics within F&B. It's true. Cloud kitchens have become a phenomenon that's here to stay, in my view. Tell us a little bit of how, because you come more from a fine dining background, how do you feel technology will impact your business, and how will you embrace it? Because clearly you well, are. You're not it, running away from it. What other chefs are, by the way. Other yeah. chefs are, are looking away and hoping it goes away. It's not going away. No, 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 no. And technology, I mean, there's not a single chef we don't embrace technology, especially in the kitchen. You know, when uh, we had the sous vide uh, era, like uh, 50 years ago, when sous vide started, it was like Revolution. out of technology in a way. Uh, when adduction was coming, and when uh, I mean, there's many sure. today. Uh, today, uh, technology help you have consistency, speed, uh, precision, and 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 cleanliness and safetyness that maybe uh, sometime you couldn't get before. Can you see automation running things like pot wash and cleaning and maybe? And that'll even- be nice. Uh, I don't know. I mean, not mm. not everything, but it definitely help. Mm. But uh, in the case of spice, for mm. example, mm. I mean, I've. Uh, I'm an early investor also in uh, Sweet Green, mm. which I love this company. Good concept. Uh, young so you're kids. a good investor as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm not a big investor, well, but I like to bet on s- little s- things. Sweet Green has done quite well. I, I, would, uh, I hope it will do well when it sells. Yes, I'm sure they will. It's a very good concept. Yeah. And they have these little... Uh, what do you call them, pop-ups pop yes. that they do as well in next to offices. And they were a friend of my daughter, and uh, ah, Nicolas Jamais, one of the founders. Ah, they're French, the son. right. Yeah, Father absolutely. Is a fr- they the come French from French and Americans. And, right. and uh, Nicolas Jamais grew up in New York. His parents were the restaurateurs who had La Caravelle, Rita and André. And they grew up as uh, children of restaurateurs. They went to Georgetown University, uh, as student and that's four, where they opened the first sweet green and exactly yeah. because uh, four young graduates of Georgetown Brilliant. were sick and tired of eating junk and decided to Correct. open their first salad bar I think it's French Lebanese if I'm not mistaken I think yeah maybe exactly have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah exactly well uh, Rita Fantastic. is more uh, yeah and Nicola is French Lebanese yes, as well yes and Spice is uh, still a young company uh, it has taken its time to to strike. Can you explain the concept just to our listeners? So, uh, four young graduates, again, very much like Sweet Green story, mm-hmm. four young graduates of um, 
of uh, MIT mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in Boston. Boston. Not such a great school in my view. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Amazing. They send me a letter. One of them actually is Egyptian. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Farid, he, he sent me a letter and he said, you know, we are, are going to be graduating in, uh, I have to recall what year, uh, five years ago. We are, we're going to be graduating of MIT and one of our projects, typical of MIT kind of cluster of uh, students working together on project, one of our projects is a robotic kitchen. And we have built a mock-up of our ideas. And would you ever be interested to see what we have done? And we would like you to know, we would like you to join us and Why give us some tips. Why do you think they came tips. to you? Because I think Michael uh, was, uh, I think his family took him to Daniel. He knew uh, of Daniel. Okay. And uh, so he, he, he ate as a young kid at Daniel, okay. and he remembers. So okay. yeah. <laughs> he approached me, and then I, I went to Boston, and I go to this uh, little think tank uh, room, one of those pods where uh, they had a little area, and there was this plywood box with some machine cooking and some wires and and some tanks of uh, food food containers on tubs and it was all made of recuperation of things and mounted with scotch tape and wires and all that it made my meal and i was like blown away and i felt well if they can really develop that into a real scale uh, scale, scale it up and so it took about two years to uh, scale up the first machine. And it took another two years to build up version two. And version two was opening and COVID happened. Uh, they were opening at Harvard Square. I Today, can't wait to go see it. What the, ro what the first robotic kitchen could do was about, let's say, 25 steps in the making of a meal based on how you were choosing your meals on the computer. Uh, and the bowl was not moving, but there was a track picking up the different uh, element of the meals. And within about uh, not even two minutes, a minute and a half, two minutes, the meal, the meal was ready and falling into a bowl. And the meal is composed of protein, chicken or beef or, or tofu. Uh, the meal was composed of grains also, so rice or, or frique or different grains and also greens and vegetables and and then different sauces uh, from you know yogurt to uh, uh, to uh, Asians so there were different style of bowls and they were warm bowls and uh, today the new robot will do about 75 step and now the the bowl the bowl is traveling through under every step when you think about a concept like sweet green essentially it's assembly of food right i mean Yes. Could you see that being automated? For fast food? Even healthy food that's... Exactly. That's the thing is that it's healthy. Yeah. It's safe. It's, uh, it's well composed. Uh, I mean, sweet green is an assembly of various fresh ingredients that you're putting together in a bowl. Completely. And, and they... It doesn't they, need a human. And they keep adding... And they, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, in a sense. But, uh, uh, but today with iPads and 100%. you pre-order and yeah. all that, it don't matter who make your meal. Uh, it's not like the old days salad bar where, you know, you're in front of the, someone and he, he put in the bowl what yeah. you like. You pre-order and you go pick it up. Or you can all do that online. Yeah. 
so I, I feel that uh, there is a tremendous potential and success, and also with the rise of organic and the rise of hydroponic and combination with organic and with food uh, who are uh, healthy and better, uh, better controlled, uh, I think it's, it has a huge uh, potential for growth. Do you consider yourself now American in your heart? Are you a New Yorker or are you I'm a Frenchman? New Yorker first and foremost, <laughs> okay. yeah. Because okay. <laughs> New Yorker, uh, you can be from anywhere. 100%, that's why I and yet, So you remain who you are and yet you are a New Yorker. 100%. <laughs> you have written uh, a number of books. One of them is, uh, I, I believe, sort of a tribute to young chefs where you give some advice. What is it, because you've done so many things in your life, luckily, and you've been very successful. What are the things that you feel your legacy should be about if you had a, an ability to shape it? Of course, and often it's hard to think that you should have only one legacy. Correct. And it's hard to think that your life was only geared to build a legacy. That's very true. Uh, so I think you are unconsciously living your life and doing things who are maybe the foundation of a legacy. But I believe that education was definitely something I invested in, for example, with Thomas Keller and Jerome Bocuse and uh, 40 chefs in America. We have a foundation called Mentor. Correct. And we started this foundation with Thomas and it was really to help young chefs. Uh, so we have raised millions of dollars to give back to young chefs to be able to take a sabbatical and take three months and choose the chef they want to work around the world. Uh, now we are gearing also to, um, to really also support. I have done that with CCAP, uh, which is a, an organization in America for uh, young kids uh, from uh, more, more um, high school from 16 to 18 with a vocational uh, direction uh, where a little uh, college or high school was giving a cooking class or things like that. CCAP has moved to other things, but I really look at high school. How can we help a kid 16 years old who has, you know, hard time maybe figuring out what to do and want to choose to become a chef? How can we help them, guide them? and help them succeed the way I succeed, because without the guidance and the support of my mentor, I would have not been able to be who I am today. Who do you consider your mentor to be? Oh, Michel Guérard, Roger Verger, Paul Bocuse, Nandron, I mean, all It feels them. to me you sought out mentors as well. It was an active choice. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I'm trying to tell young chef is that, you know, you, the choice of your mentor will shape your life mm. and shape your career and shape your future as well. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity when I was young to work with an amazing Asian chef mm. or amazing Middle Eastern chef or amazing South American the opportunities chef. opportunities now, you're here in the Middle East. <laughs> exactly. So we're waiting it's for it. It's not too late, so. It's not too late at I all. I think um, <laughs> if I ever retired one day, I'll go and work for someone. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not other sure. than French, other than me. <laughs> and, and I want to just uh, end it on speaking a little bit about the Middle East and Dubai. You told me off camera before we started that uh, uh, 2008, 
you and a number of other very well-known chefs had come to the Middle East and thought about doing something in Dubai. It took 12 years, but you're back now. I know, it's true, and I wish it could have not taken 12 it's years. It's fine. I mean, uh, better uh, late than never, as they say. Very so much. And I think this opportunity with Sofitel, they were building this new hotel. We were in touch with them, and they approached us and said, would you ever consider do a brasserie here? We are building a brasserie at the uh, Sofitel, a French brasserie. And I felt, you know, this region for me has always been an attraction. Uh, 13 years ago, I would say, 12 years ago, I was uh, coming here already and very, very interested by uh, the demand and by what was happening. I was telling someone that just before I came to America, I was working as a private chef for the summer for a Saudi. I see. In, in Mujan, in a Saudi family in Mujan, in Cannes. And I fell in love with the culture of their home Uh, the way they entertained, the way they respected me and and made me uh, part of their house. So I'm married to a Saudi, so thank you. I take it as a compliment. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> no, but being, being in France and 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 being uh, uh, and and being in a in a foreign home and living the culture of it and all that was quite uh, a, a lesson to me. And, 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 and Saudis, I think, I'm probably biased, but particularly hospitable. I mean, oh yeah, very much. You go there, and you people invite you to their homes. Yes, very very hospitable and very caring. And uh, out and of curiosity, was it a family from Riyadh or Jeddah? If I you remember, think Jeddah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I Farah can say. smiling. So she has I, uh, I don't some know. roots on the West Coast. Maybe if so. you read my resume, you might find out. <laughs> okay, I'll find out. <laughs> After I moved to America and I met my. Uh, My wife, uh, Miki, my first wife. You know, we have a daughter together. Uh, she's the mother of Alix. And but I. Uh, This is your second daughter. Oh, no, no, you have a first I daughter. Have a, I have a daughter, and now I have two young children. Ah, two uh, young a children. A boy and a girl, Julian. How, How old are they? Six and three. Oh my God! Wow. I have uh, nine and five, so we can compare wow, notes. Congratulations! <laughs> yes, thank you. Bring them to New York. Thank we'll you. I'm go to the park I'm together for sure. <laughs> for sure. But uh, interestingly enough, when. Um, I married uh, a French-Swiss uh, lady. The father was best friend and business partner and uh, at the time financial uh, advisor to, um, um, uh, to Ahmed Maghrabi. Oh, yes. You know Egyptian. Ahmed. Yeah. I know Egyptian. Ahmed. I know Ahmed well, yeah. And Ahmed was uh, actually uh, on accord in Egypt. Correct. The, for correct. Many, the Maghrabi still, yes. Um, correct. I think they'd still do. And so I was always due to go to Egypt and see the family. Uh -huh. Well, it's Government not too late. There. It's not too late. I and know. I think Ahmed is in Cairo, if I, I believe I'm yeah, not mistaken. Absolutely. So. But, uh, you know, with the shakeup of the government and the... Correct. Uh, that was um, a difficult, difficult time. time. But I difficult think that's behind time. them now, luckily. Yeah. And they're Very much. But again, he was an amazing supporter. And uh, uh, they, uh, I had the rehearsal of my wedding... Uh, I married in the south of France, and I had the rehearsal of my wedding at his at his mother's home oh, there in Cannes. And the chef, they were a couple of uh, home cook, but chef from Egypt who was cooking, and he made our meals, and he made this amazing lamb, 
uh, a brace. So I spend ah. uh, I spend most of my uh, rehearsal wedding dinner in the kitchen <laughs> to try to understand the lamb. <laughs> a braised lamb? A braised lamb? A braised lamb. Ah, how interesting. And was it with molokheya or was it... Uh, oh, it remember? was with, was it with the, the green the, broth? No, not okay. the green broth, but because a lot of spice and okay. oranges and... Interesting. Uh, okay. and, and saffrons. And so uh, anyway, the, uh, I, I, the first cookbook I wrote, I called that Leg of Lamb Cleopatra. And maybe you can try the recipe one day. For sure. And uh, that recipe was my homage to Egypt oh, and yeah. homage well, to my amazing, uh, um, unforgettable dinner. And we're in an Egyptian-inspired hotel as well. So it's <laughs> exactly. Very, uh, it all comes together. So it's following me. <laughs> yes. Uh, Daniel, thank you for your time, for all the amazing stories. And you should be, I'm sure you are, very proud of yourself. Thank I'm you, sure your Jim. children will be eating many great meals as they grow up and will be, uh, uh, you know, big shoes to, to fill. But and thank you and welcome to the Middle East. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. Inshallah, we'll see you in Egypt as well. I'm very happy that you are here to welcome me and I look forward to thank see you, you also in New York. Yes, absolutely. And we shall spend more time together. Yes, thank I you. I want to know more about the Middle East. And, yes, uh, thank you. And your next stop is in Egypt, hopefully, and I'll, hopefully I'll come with you. Exactly. And uh, if someone has the key to the Middle East, uh, you are the one. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Go visit Bouloud Brasserie at Dewafi if you live in Dubai. And of course, when we start traveling again, I highly recommend Danielle on 76th Street in New York City. There's also a link to Chef Bouloud's career chronology in our show notes if you'd like to check it out. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hesham Montasser. Our producer is Chirag Desai and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can connect with us at thelighthouse underscore AE on Instagram, and you can find all our previous episodes at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. We'll see you in two weeks.